Hey, this is Brian Caber. You're listening to Left Coast Pirates. Make sure you tune in. to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around it in. And a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, he is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Happy New Year and welcome to the first 2021 edition of Left Coast Pirates. Ding dong, the witch is dead. May 2020 never darken our doorstep again. Mike, how was your New Year's? Uh, happy New Year to you, Tommy. We got we got a long way to go here, buddy. We're not out of the woods yet. And I know the vaccine is circulating around, but you know, you and I are probably last on the totem pole to get that sucker. No, Mike. You know, you're never grateful for the great things in life. You know, I looked back at 2020 and I said, yes, it was a tough year. It was probably the longest year of anyone's life that's living right now. But I said, you know. What do I have to be grateful for? And I thought about it. And I thought about it in a family sense. And I thought about it in a podcast sense. And in a podcast sense, we've got so much to be thankful for. I mean, think about all the people we spoke to that we normally would not have had an audience with of some sort, but for the podcast. I mean, we had a set of interviews that were great. We talked to Andrew Gaze. We talked to Brian Caber. We talked to Kadeen Carrington. And this is just a few. I mean, we could list this on and bore people to death. But additionally, we've developed relationships with some of these people. I mean, Mike... I would have never met Coach Bazella and the rest of the women's staff had they not graciously hosted me right before the Big East Women's Tournament. You're going to keep on rubbing that in there. You got to get out of jail free card there for senior night while I had to do my fatherly duties back here on the West Coast. No, huh? you, you, you bet on that NCAA tournament and I bet on Big East, baby. But additionally, I've met people through social media like Dan Dunn, former player from the 83 team. I, you know, I've met Patrick Mind, who's an admin of the Seton Hall Pirates Facebook group. Hey, if you're looking for a good Facebook group to join, join that one. Lots of great info there. But my you know what else I'm grateful for? Something more current. A 2-0 week, Mike. We went 2-0. Tommy, I'm not going to bore you with any monologues of mine for the show tonight. I'm, uh, I'm not going to let you call me the Grinch or give me any bah humbugs. We're going to roll on a positive note. There's a lot to cover in this 2-0 week. Let's just get right to it. So this week on the podcast, we will review the wins at Xavier and home against Butler. We will preview the upcoming Creighton game. And we go behind enemy lines with WeAreDePaul.com blogger Dan Stack to take a look at the returning DePaul Blue Demons. But first, Seton Hall 85, Xavier 68. 
It was a tightly contested game for the first 15 minutes as Seton Hall led 29 to 28. The Hall then ended the first half on a 15-0 run, culminating with the deep three from Bryce Aiken. The two teams traded buckets for the next eight minutes to start the second half. Then the Pirates hit the Musketeers with another 19-6 run to push the lead to 27 with just under five minutes to play. The rest of the game was extended garbage time until the final buzzer. Right, Tom, the Pirates filled the box score in this one. Individually, they had six players in double figures. Sandro led the way with 18 points and seven boards. Jared Roden chipped in 14 points and eight rebounds himself. And three guys off the bench, Aiken with 11, and Molson and Samuel with 10 apiece. For Xavier, Jersey product Zach Fremantle put in 20 points, nine rebounds, and three assists. Paul Scruggs had a game high of eight assists, but he and Nate Johnson were averaging 29 points combined on the year coming into this game, and they only scored six with Johnson going scoreless. On the team side, Seton Hall went to the charity stripe 14 times and was a perfect 14 for 14, while Xavier was only 7 for 11, with most of those coming late in the contest. The three-point shooting, Xavier was 39% coming into this game, and Seton Hall held them to a paltry 21% on 5 of 21 from distance. And Seton Hall finally turned things around in the rebounding edge, Tom. They actually held a 42 to 28 edge on the glass. To me, Tom, the turning point in this one, I think it's pretty obvious. Jason Carter was doing whatever the heck Jason Carter wanted to do until he cut his eye and needed to come out of the game with the score tied 22-22. As I mentioned, doing everything. He had 10 points and six rebounds that early in the game. The next basket came on a Sandro Mamukelishvili pass to Miles Kale for a dunk. And to me, that just brings us to an early edition of the woe did you see that moment for this week's episode. So let, let's let's dive right into it, Tom. I, I thought that that play is definitely up there for the nomination for woe did you see that. I'll give you an, another one and, and then we'll kind of debate back and forth. So the other play that I would even put into consideration is from the, the Butler game. Tyrese gets the ball on the right wing, takes one dribble, and then two gazelle-like rides into the lane and then kind of cuffs it full extension and then pow with a dunk. I'm sitting there going, this is right up Tom's alley. He's going to be all over this. It just showed such athleticism and what that potential ceiling is for Tyrese. It just got everybody excited. The announcers got excited. I went back and played Gary Cohen's take. He sounded like he was jumping through the microphone on the radio. It was good stuff there, Tommy. I don't even know you anymore. What's this, a New Year's resolution, Mike? Two dunks in a, what did you see that moment coming from you? I would have expected something about walling up, going, look at me, I'm playing great defense, I'm walling up. There but, you, a... you know, I'll tell you, I'll add one walling more Walling up in. this week. I'll add one more in there because... Uh, as I was watching, even the wife made comment about this. Ike Obiagu had a volleyball-esque block of Miles Tate in the in Butler game. He took a pick and he came into the lane and Ike just trailed him, trailed him, trailed him. And he put up a shot and just tossed it out of bounds. It was pretty impressive. But yes, nothing like either the Kale dunk or the Tyrese dunk. Those were truly impressive. But uh, before we continue and put on those blue-tinted glasses, I want to go back. I, don't, I think you're selling Jason Carter short 
about his 10.6 rebound outburst uh, in the early parts of that game. You know, you mentioned it was tied at 22 when he came out. He actually scored 10 of the first 14 points for Xavier, man. He was all over the court. See, I, I think you're selling the whoa, did you see that moment short. The reason why the Sandro pass and Tomahawk dunk from Kale was all over Twitter and social media during the game, after the game, and it's probably going to be on like the end of the year highlight videos. Sandro gathers a steal and at full speed with his offhand whips the ball basically cross-court pinpoint on a dime to Kale on the move in the lane before he goes up in Tomahawk's dunks and go back and realize that was his offhand. And then everyone's just gushing, going, oh, NBA first-round pick. There it is. There's the potential. There's the ceiling. Absolutely. All together, it was a fabulous play between the pass and the dunk. That dunk makes it regardless of the pass at that point. I think that pass makes it regardless of what Kale ends up doing. If Kale just ends up laying it up, it's still a woe to just see that moment just for everything in it. So yes, it was a complete play that was just super exciting. But all right, let's put on the blue tinted glasses and talk about what the Pirates did well. Mike, I tweeted this out right after the game. I'm rarely, rarely surprised by an effort that the team puts out but wow, this was a complete team performance by the Pirates that I don't recall. Maybe since the Nova game at, in Philly, I think they played that well. I mean, between rebounding, hitting your free throws, playing defense, getting out in transition. You know, this really was a superior performance by the Pirates. All right, Tommy, it's going to be hard to disagree with that. I mean, and poke holes in this game. I, I know we have to do a sour grapes and gripes section ultimately in this podcast, but Seton Hall probably played as a complete game as we've seen from them all season long. And what, what it does for me and what it probably did for a lot of fans watching that game is it raised the bar for expectations for how good this team could be, you know, throughout the rest of the season. If they were predicted to finish, you know, somewhere, at, you know, in that fifth range in the preseason coaches poll, which was going to put them on the cusp of being an NCAA tournament team, you know, maybe on the bubble, maybe just on the right side in. And after the early season struggles and kind of maybe watching some players try to figure out what their identity was going to be, you know, on this team, you know, in the rotation, there were some concerns. And I think a lot of people just said, wow. That's the team that we thought if everything was clicking on all cylinders, that's the ceiling that the pirates could play at. And it got everybody really excited. And I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm excited too, but you know, I want to pump the brakes just a little bit, but you know, that performance was as complete as it gets. Don't be pumping the brakes yet, Mike. We've still got things to talk about, man. How about that bench play? I mean, you could just take a look at how they played against Xavier and then contrast it to how they played against Georgetown. I mean, Bryce Aiken finally had his breakout moment. He was looking good out there, man. He was getting to the basket for easy looks. To call Molson, your boy was finishing his drives and had the second best plus minus on the team at plus 25. I mean, they all looked really good. It was a complete dominant performance 
Can, can I take issue with one of the things you just said? Bryce Aiken had his breakout moment. No, Br- Bryce is not a freshman. Bryce has had plenty of breakout moments throughout his career. Not at Seton Hall, pal. Oh, can we stop? Can we stop just viewing Bryce through the eyes of a Seton Hall jersey only? I don't he- care what he did for the Crimson. I don't care. He's now in a Seton Hall pirate jersey. That's all that matters for me. And that's why you got to let this guy play. The more he gets the rust off, the more you're going to see that ability that was already on film with the Crimson start to shine through in pirate blue. So people got excited because, yeah, he was projected to be potentially the second best player on this roster. I know we did this before with Torian Thompson in the past. He's going to be our number two leading scorer, and it never panned out. And I think some of the fans were like, are we going to go down this road again? I don't think so. I really do think the skill sets there, the abilities there, it's going to translate on the biggies level. And we got to see a glimpse of it. And that also, along with the complete performance, got everybody excited. You even said it to me. Wow, we're starting to see somebody get to the rim off the dribble. I I don't remember the last time that that's happened, Michael. And I joke and say, Tom Mayan, Tommy. Tom Mayan. (laughs) Well, let's take a brief pause here and let everybody finish their drink as Mike mentioned Torian Thompson again on the podcast. But as we do, we talk about the good. Let's take a look at the bad, Mike. Well, can, can I can I give you one more point? Uh, it, no, it, move on. I'm not moving on. The, the plus minus wasn't just Molson. The plus minus was also Aiken in this game. And I think it kind of got glossed over. Molson was a plus 25. Aiken was a plus 17. And as well as the team played, you know, Kale only had a plus two. And Shavar only had a plus five. I, the, like I said, a great performance overall. But this backcourt duo was just flat out on in this game. And, and, you know, you can, they're interchangeable now, if you ask me. They really all could play 20 minutes a game. And that's kind of how the box score played out in this particular matchup. I'd like to see more of that, Tom. Oh, I love it when you take your favorites, see one good game from them and say, now they're interchangeable. Yes. Oh, Mike, you kill me. And yes, now you're putting me in a bad mood. So let's talk about sour grapes and gripes. I'm going to point out one thing that you're not going to want to hear it, Mike. Sandro, six turnovers. How is this happening? I can't defend him here. At the end of the day, he does fill the stat sheet in terms of his 18 points and his seven rebounds. But when, you know, the, the six turnovers are going to be a black eye on anybody's box score. And I have a little bit of an issue that it just didn't happen in the Xavier game. It also happened in the Butler game. He had another five turnovers. And, and here's my issue. Here's my sour grapes and gripes. I'm not going to pick on Sandro. I'm going to pick on the usage of Sandro. He is, as everyone wants to say, he's a unicorn to put the ball on the floor. He's a point forward, not a point forward. He has the ability to put the ball on the deck and create, but they are putting him more often than not in half court sets where they're asking him to create. That is where his turnovers are coming. He had that happen numerous times in the Xavier game. And Tom, I went back and charted his five turnovers in the Butler game. Bear with me here for a second. Twice he traveled trying to create off the dribble at the top of the key. Twice he got hit for charges by being out of control coming down the lane. And then another time he's trying to create and throws a cross-court pass that gets picked off. I mean, this is like bad point guard play, you know, one-on-one type mistakes here that you just can't make. Putting him in a spot that is not suited 
to what he has in terms of ball handling skills. And great, you know, he's, he's a unicorn, but not in that aspect of the half-court offense. I'd like to see him get the ball more to Sandro in the post and let his facilitation happen out of the double team. I, I just want to point out that this is supposed to be sour grapes and gripes from the Xavier game, Mike, and you just broke down Sandro's problems in the Butler game. This is how hard you're having a time of trying to figure out what things to say negative. I watched that Butler game a second time and kind of hone in on that specific aspect of his game so I can give you more more of a breakdown of what's going on here. And, it, and it's not about him just being sloppy with the ball all the time. It's in specific situations okay mike what other complaints could you possibly have from this total domination no, it's it's not a complaint it's it's more of an issue and it's a it's a whole li- holistic issue from what i kind of see out there you know as in the emotions after a game like this you always yell at me for being what tom a prisoner of the moment and I just kind of felt like after this game, that's exactly what our fan base did. And I also think that's exactly what a lot of the writers that follow the team, both locally and nationally, absolutely did in this game. All right, Tom. So issue number one that I have is the overhyping of what was a solid win. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on Carino here for a second. On Twitter, he puts out, Xavier was 20th in the coaches poll and 26th in the AP top 25. Seton Hall is breaking the Musketeers over a knee in Cincinnati. As impressive a performance as I've ever seen from a Kevin Willard team. And that's saying something. Did we already forget about the performances from this program last year? I mean, you and I have talked about it. The games at Nova to end the streak, the game at Marquette, on Marcus Howard Senior Day, true road environments, full crowds in attendance, intense games that we played start to finish, maybe outside the last like 50 seconds of the Marquette game. But I mean, Tom, those were dominating performances, nowhere close to the level of the Xavier game. And that's not to take anything away from the Xavier game, but nowhere close in comparison, if you ask me. I almost feel like I have to underhype my state, my previous statement now, Mike. You know, I said I was impressed by the effort. I wasn't expecting it is what I should say. I didn't expect that complete an effort. But yeah, I mean, I think we're totally prisoners of the moment here because this Xavier team is nowhere near the quality opponent that a Nova or a Marquette were last year. And let's not forget the Big East tournament finals against Nova. That was a spectacular game in and of itself i could keep going quality of opponent how about the game at the rock versus number five xavier whitehead and company to close out the home slate in 2005 2016 they come out and smack that team in the mouth and dominate that game start to finish i'm sorry tom i'm just not seeing how this xavier team who is a you know suspect borderline top 25 team is anywhere in comparison to some of the other games throughout the kevin will your tenure it's, it's just overhyping it's overhyping well but that's what twitter does you know you say that you make a comment put it out there you try to get as many eyeballs as you can and you hope they come through your pay page and click on your article a few times okay prisoner of the moment Issue number two is the falling in love with Bryce Aiken after his performance in this game. Now, earlier in the season, after the ankle injury, after Shavar steadied the ship, and while Aiken was trying to work his way back into action, I talked at length, no, no, at nauseam, 
as to how important it was for Aiken to find his game for this team to perform at the next level. I even predicted Seton Hall to potentially have a ceiling of number two in the Big East regular season standings if Aiken can kind of live up to the hype along with other guys reaching their potential. And now here after the Xavier game, after we haven't heard a word for God knows how long about Aiken's importance to the team, Jeff Goodman on Twitter. And maybe I should just stop going back to Twitter and just shut my account down. But Seton Hall is, in capital letters, completely different with a healthy Bryce Aiken. The Hartford transfer is starting to look more and more like a pre-injury Aiken can score and also run the team and create ops for teammates. John Fanta, friend of the podcast, Bryce Aiken is perhaps the biggest determinant of Seton Hall ceiling. Tonight, he went 11 points, four rebounds, three assists, and one turnover. Looked much more comfortable. And J.P. Pelsman, and maybe J.P. dialed it back a bit. He goes, as for Bryce Aiken, I'm pumping the brakes for just a bit because I feel like you have to, given his injury issue, but he continues to say, but the quickness has been there the last two games. And tonight was the first real taste of how he can affect the game. If he can keep this going, look out, Big East. I mean, there's a reason why Aiken was up there with Matt Harms and Carly Jones amongst the most sought-after grad transfers in last spring. Oh, Tom, how quickly we forget. Oh, quickly how we forget, Tommy. Mike, again, this is this is simply Twitter. I mean, this is how it goes. I'd love to... I wish you put together a, a collection of tweets from yesterday after Bryce didn't play well. Did they completely reverse face again? It, it just drives me nuts, the hot and cold. You know, so I'm, I'm going to go back now. I'm going to continue to go back into social media. And I'm going to go back to the Oregon loss. And here's Carino again on Twitter saying, Eugene Omarui looked great. The Pirates did not. This wasn't about missing a point guard. You know, and then the fans, you know, the, 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 now this is not fair because there were a lot of fans out there on social media believe that there's the potential. But there was a lot of fans that were just throwing him under the bus. Oh, Mike, you can't do this. You can't um, go to the message boards for this. Mike, come on. Here's the here's a fan after the Marquette game. I was so happy to see Bryce back on the court. But as, a, as Marquette tied it up, I was yelling at the TV to bring Reynolds back in. Who would have thunk it? And then it keeps going in the Providence game. Uh, the, the, these, these are rough. Aiken is terrible. He does not have his legs back or simply cannot shoot. Can't give Aiken extended minutes. He's awful right now. Aiken looked abysmal. Not sure if it's the latest injury or just a combo of all of his injuries. His fall from expectations reminds me of, wait for it, Tommy, Torian Thompson. Everybody drink right now. At this rate, you can get 15 minutes of quality Aiken at 80% health. That may be the ceiling. Come on. Don't get so high. Don't get so low. It was a great win. It is not a monumental win. We're not the best team in the country now. We're not going to the final four. It just showed what kind of potential we can have. And yeah, it's exciting to see what Bryce can bring. But you know, support these guys. Either you believe Bryce is going to be the game changer the whole season or Stravar is my starting point guard. Pick one. Pick one. Well, since you have to go to social media to find something wrong with this game, I suggest we move on to the next one. And so, Seton Hall 68, Butler 60. The Hall appeared as if they didn't like the early afternoon start with Butler jumping out to a 20-13 to lead. 
For the second game in a row, the Pirates closed that first half strong with a 21-5 run to take a 34-25 lead into the half. A Jared Roden pick six dunk extended the lead to 12 with 12-17 to play. But Butler came back with an 11-0 run of its own to make the score 47-46. The game remained tight down the stretch until key jumpers by Jared Roden and Miles Kale created the separation the hall needed to close out the game. Before I give you the stats, I just realized we beat the snot at Xavier and I just sounded like one grumpy bah humbug to start oh, the new year, man. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to bring it back and be a little more positive as we roll into this Butler victory further. So uh, the stats on this one, Sandro, 24 points, 8 of 14 from the floor, 9 rebounds, 6 assists. Once again, doing a little bit of everything. I thought he had a shot at a triple-double uh, at halftime. Jared Roden, 19 points, 7 rebounds. For Butler, it was all about their freshman backcourt. Miles Tate, 22 points, a career high, and five assists to boot. Chuck Harris, 11 points and four boards. But the two freshmen combined to go eight for 12 from three-point range, which essentially kept Butler in the matchup start to finish. From a team perspective, very nice numbers to see here for the Hall. The Hall held the rebounding edge yet again for a second straight ball game. 33 to 25, but they played the game at Butler's pace. Tom, get this two fast break points for the entire game. And I'm not talking just Seton Hall, both teams combined. And there was no bench play, no flow as guys came in and out of this ball game, a total of nine bench points combined six for the hall, three for Butler. The turning point for me kind of coming down the stretch, Jared Roden just had hit, a difficult pull-up jumper from the foul line, and it got answered with a three-point bucket by Jar Bolden to cut the lead to two with 2.45 to play. But Shavar Reynolds found an open Miles Kale in the left corner who calmly drained a three-pointer of his own to push the lead back to five, and Butler ran out of answers after that. Win for the Hall. Well, Mike, I'm putting on the blue-tinted glasses to tell you what happened well. Mike, the defense was stellar. I mean, we just really came to play in it. We we really made it hard on Butler to score. As a matter of fact, a lot of Butler's points came on contested shots, rushed shots, shots from the moon. I mean, they were really taking late shots in the shot clock and just drilling them. It was, uh, I even at one point I was like Jared Roden, just grabbing my head going, oh my God, I can't believe that went in. Tom, the, the, the D was locked down. That's the word you want to use here, lockdown. They didn't even let Butler get to the free throw line. Only nine attempts on the game. If they tried to enter into the paint, it was suffocating. Butler only scored 14 points for the entire game in the paint. And when they tried to come in, get out of town. Another eight blocks for the Pirates. Ike had four. Samuel had three. Oh, Samuel, dude, his first career blocks. Awesome. <laughs> That's not fair. That's not <laughs> fair. What, what I liked about it was they were not gambling on these blocks. They were grounded. They kind of played straight up man-to-man -man D on their guy and then elevated to kind of send it back whenever they tried to throw a little baby hook or a little turnaround. 
It, normally they're gambling and coming over from the weak side to try to get those blocks. And when they aren't successful, there's a lot of weak side offensive rebounding opportunities that lead to easy points for the opposition. None of that today. Tom, you already said it. 11 for 22 from deep today. And it felt like most of them, they were chucking with a guy in their face. There was two times where Kate got the ball late in the shot clock, well behind the three point line and bury that. And you're like, ah, oh, come on. Here's what I'm going to do, Tom. And I know you don't like the ifs and buts, but I'm going to say, let's take out those two threes with just over 12 minutes to play. Butler had only scored 35 points. You take out those two chucks and they really only scored 29 points in 28 minutes of play. Lockdown, Tommy. You know, I do tease Tyrese about the blocks. You know, he's actually been playing a lot better on D. He's been moving those feet as compared to what it looked like earlier in the season. So, no, it was a stellar performance all around. But you know what else went well? The stars came to play. You need your big players to play well, and they most certainly did. Who am I talking about? Sandro and Jared Roden. They combined for 15 of 25 field goals. And when Seton Hall was building that lead and during that stretch, the two combined to score 21 of the team's 22 points. They played stellar. I mean, Willard rode them. Sandro played 38 minutes. Roden played 37. Uh, they clearly have their roles defined. Let, let, there's no if, ends, or buts about it. The other team knows that. Seton Hall knows that they got to continue to feed him and get him his shots. And, and they look to do that throughout stretches of this game. And then there's Roden who has also established himself as the number two scoring option for this team. And when Roden has the kind of game that he has, we're tough to beat. We talked about his lower production and the losses here. He was again with another 19 in a Seton Hall victory. But Tom, my issue is this, you see that you see the difference when we can't find that third component. In the Xavier game, they look flawless because other guys contributed. But in the Butler game, they did not have that third option, that other player that was contributing throughout the ball game. But the offense looked ugly, regardless of the success that Sandro and Roden were having. Don't you agree? Well, you know, I normally don't care about who the third scorer is going to be generally. I think you could do that one by committee. But I think this is a good segue into sour grapes and gripes. I'm not so much upset that there was no third scorer that really identified himself. I'm more concerned that they didn't really have a strategy that allowed that to happen. I mean, Mike, it seemed to be strange because our two-point and three-point shots were cut down right down the middle. We took 24 of each, but we made 15 of 24 of our twos, mostly in the paint. And we only went seven for 24 from three. Why are we shooting so many threes when we're obviously not making them that day? Yeah, I just don't get it. I mean, it's kind of just like watching and sitting back. There was a certain success on offense that we were having that I thought was just kind of obvious. When we were going to Sandro from the late first half stretch into the early second half stretch, he was getting his own. And look, let me highlight a specific period in the, in, to start the second half. Sandro scores nine points in the first four minutes and 37 seconds, and everything is in or around the basket. I mean, did you know that after that period, Sandro only attempted two shots for the rest of the game, and one of them was a three? 
Well, it was like that in the first half as well. I mean, they, they put up a stat on the screen that said 16 points in the paint for Seton Hall. And I looked at the numbers quickly. It was legitimately 8 for 10 shooting from 2. So that means all their points in the paint, that's all they shot was either balls at the rim or from 3. They had nothing else going on. It, it, they had, Xavier had no answer for us in the middle. Who was going to stop that team? See, I, I, and I don't think this is an issue with Sandro. I, I really don't. I really think this is an issue where coach needs to recognize this and Willard has to sit there and say, you know what? We're going to Sandro in the post, period. Clear out, give him the ball in the post, make something happen, or better yet, at that point, Butler has to adjust. They have to bring a double team, and then you're going to get open looks, and maybe we're not shooting 7-24 to 24 with cleaner looks at the basket. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I'm going to give you the next one here. I'm going to set the stage because I have another sour grape and gripe for this one. Tom, I think we might have taken Butler for granted. No Aaron Thompson or Jacoby Coles. We let them get out to a seven-point early lead, yet we do build up the lead to 13 at one point, and we let them rally back down to cut it to one. I mean – we were the better team on the court today. And for it to have to be that close down the stretch, I don't know. It just, it just didn't feel right. Something was off. Well, you know, Mike, without discounting the hot shooting start that Butler had and the fact that it is the big East and you know, every game counts in the big East. There is no real reason why this should have been a close game. Butler was down two of their better players, if not their best player and another key ingredient and we just, we let them take the lead and then we let them gnaw, gnaw, gnaw. It was like alligator blood. They wouldn't go away. We had this conversation right after the game and it kept coming to mind while I was watching it. It felt like watching a high school varsity team play the JV team and the high school varsity team has no interest in this matchup. They're just kind of going along the motions and the JV team is playing like their life depends upon it. See, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, our on-the-ball defense and the way that we protected the paint, I love the intensity that this team had on the defensive side of the ball throughout the ball game. I mean, they we talked about it. They locked them down. Our bigger issue was just offensive philosophy on the other side of the court. See, see, I don't agree with that. I think there's a difference between skill and desire. We're always coming out there skilled. We're always playing hard. I don't know that they had the desire. They thought that this was a chump game. They thought this was easy money, and they played it that way. See, I'm, I'll, I'll go with you, but I'm going to spin it differently. I think what the issue is this team potentially lacks the killer instinct to put opponents away. I mean, we've already seen this script play itself out multiple times in Big E's play this year. Well, let's go back and review quickly. In the Marquette game, they were up by 11, and they let them rally to tie it. In the Georgetown game, we were up by 19, but we let him cut it to single digits at one point. In this Butler game, we already stated 13, cut down to one. And then against Providence, they were up by nine with multiple opportunities to extend to double digits. And unfortunately, they did not capitalize and let Providence rally, and we ultimately lost that game. That's my concern, and that's my bigger takeaway here, is that when we continue to play the better opponents on our schedule the novas the creightons you're not going to be able to get away with stretches of four minutes without scoring 
not being able to kind of complete a run and step on a team's throat and finish them off. These better teams are going to come back and make you pay. Doesn't that concern you? It absolutely concerns me, but it really concerns me that we seem to not get ourselves up for these games that we feel like we should win. I, we didn't have a problem getting up for the Xavier game. We didn't have a problem getting up for the Marquette game. I am certain that we'll be ready to at least play Nova, regardless of how it all, all ends up. But we've got to take care of business on the back end as well. I mean, it was only a few years ago that DePaul ended up sweeping us uh, for the season. And I don't want to hear they, it was a bad matchup. Skills should win. I don't want to hear bad matchups. Beat the teams you're supposed to beat and beat them the way you're supposed to. Yeah, so we're, we're just going to agree to disagree. I think you have to have an offensive system that continues to create easy shots and quality looks throughout a game. And at times our point guard play collectively has bogged down. And I think that's a great way to transition into. And now deep thoughts with Kevin Willard. So in his post game with Popkin and Cohen, he's talking about, Shavar Reynolds and his end game sequence. And here's his response. You know, he got downhill a little bit on the pick and roll. And that's something that, you know, uh, he does really good in practice and in the game for some reason. I, you know, I think he's he's so mindful of trying to get guys the right shot. And I think he sometimes he doesn't get downhill enough to put pressure on defense. And I think he did a good job realizing, you know, I don't think Sanjo came out in the second half that everybody was gassed and that he needed, you know, he needed to make a play. So I'm confused. Are we talking about the play where Shavar had the assist to Samuel after picking up his dribble on the block? Is, is that the play he's talking about? It must have been because Shavar, we've seen this over and over this season so far. Shavar makes a move to the basket. He kind of comes to his jump stop, and then he starts pivoting on that one foot, looking for that pass when it's not there. And it normally doesn't turn out well. So here's my issue. It's point guard play 101 to either not give up your dribble or leave your feet without knowing where to pass the ball to. And if Samuel doesn't wall out Bryce Golden and carve out some space underneath the bucket to receive that pass, it probably would have resulted in a crucial turnover in a one-point game. I, I also went back to kind of review the tape because Willard's talking about getting downhill. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but th this includes all the point guard play for the game. Reynolds and Aiken, who also didn't have a solid back-to-back -back performance, but there was a total of what I would call downhill penetration, a total of four times for the entire game, Tom. Our pick-and-roll offense is swing the ball around the perimeter. We are not putting pressure on the defense, causing them to collapse, and then allowing for a dish and finish or a dish and kick. So I, I just, I'm kind of confused. What, what was Willard trying to defend in terms of our offensive point guard play relative to what Shavar did down the stretch? I, I didn't see it. I, I don't know. I'm having a hard time with this quote. I'm tired of hearing about what guys do in practice and how well they do this. We always hear, oh, he's our best three-point shooter in practice or this is our thing in practice. I'm tired of that. Let me see how it translates into the game and I'll be happy. Now, personally, I can't really bang on Shavar too much here or, or really do a real big dissection of, of Willard defending Shavar's play. You know, for the first three quarters of the game, we really didn't get a whole lot out of the point guard play. 
down the stretch. Shavar hits a big three. He makes that play. He draws a charge. Hits hits some free throws. He ha- he played well down the stretch in that game. So I just can't bang on him too much right now. I'm not trying to bang on Shavar. This is about the quote that Willard brought to the table. And my issue is, you know, he thinks that things are getting better. If our pick and roll game is going to be this flat, meaning they're not aggressively going to the basket, and we just end up swinging the ball around the perimeter, you end up with a lot of late shot clock possessions where Roden, Kale, Sandro are trying to make things happen one-on-one. We talk about it all the time, hero ball, and I don't think it's their fault, but they had nothing else to do with under 10 seconds to go on the shot clock. If we don't have a consistent pick and roll game like we had with Q and row last year or with some other combinations throughout the years, they let's continue to go back to the strength, which is Sandro in the post. Let's create the double team, kick the ball out and create the mismatch. Tom, that's why they went through this funk. They had no offensive philosophy in this game. But for the fact that we have these deep thoughts with Kevin Willard, we could have handed him the mic flop for the week. But since we do have that segment, Mike, what did you hear on the broadcast that made you just shake your head? I, I heard that they announced that Dickie Simkin was doing our game, and I was oh, just like, oh, jeez. Watching Dickie play was painful enough, and now we have to listen to him for 40 minutes. <laughs> we could do an entire show on Mike Flops from Dickie Simpson, but we're, we're not, we're not going to go there. I'm not a fan of Dickie. He's, he's not a good listen. What I'm going to pick on this time are the Mike Flops that occurred during the pregame and the postgame. I'm going to pick on the announcers on the call, and I'm also going to pick on the studio. Let's start at the top of the show uh, with the Xavier pregame. You got Casey Jacobson, who normally I'm a fan of, but he's kind of breaking down uh, Zach Fremantle for Xavier and says, hey, he's shooting 80% from the free throw line this year. Uh, No, he's not. That was his numbers from 2019, 2020, Casey. He's only shooting 50% from the line coming into the game this year. Well, he's, you, you, he's only a Stanford grad. You know, maybe he's just having a hard time reading, Mike. You got to get that right. Either that or the intern's got to get fired. I don't know. Uh, th- then we go, then we cut away from Casey and we get into the game broadcast and here's Dickie Simpkin going over the keys to the game. And he's like, watch for Ike Obiagu to clean the glass today. R- really? Did, did he pull up his rebounding stats? Dickie is stuck in the late nineties. He sees a seven foot two center and he's thinking he must be dominating the glass. Just look at the stat sheet in front of you. Come on, man. It's not that hard. Uh, Dick, Dickie's Dickie was painful. Uh, and then we get to the post game. Uh, after the Butler game, and you have Steve Lavin going over the the closing out of halves for Seton Hall, and he highlights the 15-0 run versus Xavier, and then he highlights the 21-5 to run versus Butler, and then follows it up with this beauty. Seton Hall is really showing that they know how to ice a game away. They, they, they do? Did, did he realize that that Butler game that was just played right in front of his own eyes, and Butler had possession of the ball with four minutes to play? I mean, that, that was that was down to the wire because we didn't close them out or ice them away when we were up by 13 earlier on. Come on, Steve. You, you know, I like Lavin. I like them as a coach, but he just seems like he's one of those guys that's in there to be that positive guy, that positivity. He's going to put any kind of positive spin on it that he can. And he's just he just wants to be that guy that everybody likes. I don't know. I, I, I can do without it at this point. 
I, I think your wife is in trouble. I mean, if anybody's got a man crush, Lavin's got a man crush on Roden. Nope. <laughs> a lot of people these days have got man crushes on Roden. But, Mike, we went 2-0, but we've got a real important game coming up this week. On Wednesday night in Omaha, Nebraska, we face Creighton for the first time this year. Creighton currently is 8-2, 4-1 in the Big East. As of this recording, they're ranked 11th in the AP. Based on the results this week, they might be cracking the top 10 come Monday. They've got real big wins at UConn. They beat then 22nd Xavier, and they've beaten Providence. They've had a couple losses, but the losses aren't bad. They lost to Kansas by a point, 73 to 72 in Kansas, and they also lost to Marquette, 89 to 84. No, Tommy, their biggest loss is the loss of Tyshawn Alexander coming into this season. I'm going to highlight it again. We talked about it with John Fanta in our preseason show. I know you're a big fan of Marcus Zagorowski and him leading the way. And don't get me wrong. They got a complimentary uh, roster to kind of back up Zagorowski. But I still believe that this team could have been dominant if Tyshawn Alexander decided to stay. A two-way player, first-team All-Big East competitor, lockdown defender You know, on that side of the ball. And they lost him. I mean, he couldn't come back. I know you're saying, well, Miles Powell, Miles Powell would have stayed. No, Miles Powell it graduated. Tyshawn Alexander had a choice to stay. He didn't have to leave early to get a two-way contract in the NBA. I mean, this could have been a top five team if he was still on the roster. It's a little shocking that he didn't get drafted toward the end of that second round, wasn't it, Mike? I mean, you'd figure just from his defensive prowess, somebody would have taken a look at him, no? I thought he had the prototypical NBA-type game, but what do I know anymore? I mean, (laughs) Well, but you know what? They may have lost their best player, but they have a great core coming back. You already talked about the preseason Big East Player of the Year, but let's look at the rest of the roster. Mitch Ballack comes back he's scoring 10 points a game shooting almost 40 percent from three damian jefferson scoring 11 points a game five rebounds three assists denzel mahoney 15 points a game five rebounds a game he's their leading scorer he's coming off a season where he was chosen biggie sixth man of the year and finally christian bishop scoring 12 and a half points a game and getting six rebounds along with that game-winning dunk at providence mike i'm hearing a lot of offense going around i hear a lot of contributions here well this is still a pretty loaded roster as much as i can pick on the loss of alexander they got five guys that can fill the stat sheet and put in double figures on any given night the the key is still zegarowski there are times where he is pressing too much this year and maybe putting too much of it on his shoulders that's some bad game shooting from three and in those nights the team has struggled he's got the talent around him they kind of have to find their role yes you want the ball in the hands of Zegarowski down the stretch, but he's got some competent players that can, you know, put the ball in the basket and beat you in many different ways. I mean, you said it, Tom, there's a lot of offense on this team. They are still averaging a typical Creighton 81.3 points per game, which is borderline top 50 in the country, 17 and a half assists, 35th in the country, and still shooting 37% from three with 10 makes per game, which ranks as 27th best in the country as well. I mean, they can fill it up without a doubt. 
And let's not forget, they still got Papa Bucket sitting there on the bench coaching that team. He's a stellar coach. But, you know, Mike, as they can put the ball in a hole and get out there on the run, they're also able to muck up the games this year. They've won some close, low-scoring affairs this year. The wins at Xavier and Providence, the scores were both in the 60s, and their defense is pretty stellar. They held Providence to 34% shooting. They held Xavier to a similar amount shooting, and they held them to 8 for 32 from 3. I mean, this team is pretty complete. They are, which is what makes it a really, really tough matchup to kick off this road trip. This matchup combined with the DePaul game, the you know, that Saturday afternoon to complete the week, you know, it, it's going to be a little tough stretch here for the Pirates. And as you mentioned, not only do we stop in Omaha, but we also make our way to Chicago to face the DePaul Blue Demons for the first time this year. What better way to check in on the Blue Demons than to go behind enemy lines with friend of the podcast, Dan Stack. I'm just hoping we actually played DePaul. How many times have they paused already? <laughs> this last Jeez. time it wasn't their fault. They went. They were going to play St. John's and it got paused. Uh, what do they got? Like four games under their belt so far. It just sounds like they're kind of cursed this year. It's, some, they're going to be it's some bad juju on that side of the ball. You know, bad juju is us going to play in Chicago. Typically, I don't know. <laughs> he has been a featured columnist for Bleacher Report as well as a blogger for NewYorkGiantsRush.com. <laughs> Mets360.com and currently is a senior writer for WeAreDePaul.com. Please welcome back to Left Coast Pirates Live, Dan Stack. Dan, how are you today? Not bad. Not bad at all. Dan, thanks again for joining the show. Happy New Year to you and yours. Same. Likewise. Uh, before we kind of get into the podcast, we've been doing this with all our guests, kind of, as you mentioned off the air, kind of just a weird 2020. How have you been handling covid uh, 19 and your, everybody else in your surrounding circle. Oh, we just, I got a good support system. I got two good brothers that I uh, always hang out with just pretty much hunkered down, just go out for the basic necessities. It's not so bad. I've been getting used to it, but I do. I, I can't wait until we get a vaccination and uh, we can move past this and uh, actually get back to watching games in person. Well, yeah, and just kind of get past all the all the change and what's been going on. But speaking of change, kind of want to dive into the summertime here in the DePaul program. Back in June of 2020, uh, they had Gene Lenti Ponsetto, the athletic director for almost 18 years, step down and retire. And then they hired in August of 2020, uh, Dwayne Peavy, who was previously the deputy AD at Kentucky. So far, what have you seen within the program relative to that change, relative to culture, or kind of direction of the program? Just a breath of fresh air and exactly what they need. Um, he's, a, he's a visionary. He worked hand in hand with Calipari. He, he worked at the SEC Network. He's very cerebral. He's very forward thinking, innovative. He knows this is, this is um, a basketball program. We, we know no football. He knows where the bread is, where the bread is buttered, and he he says all the right things. He wants to win. He says if you don't want to win championships, you're not in the same thing because he dreams big, and you know he saw he saw the glory up close with Calipari, so he knows what it takes to have a successful basketball program. He was one of the guys who got Calipari to join Twitter, and now Twitter he's like a big one of the biggest coaching stars on Twitter, Calipari. So and. He's very disruptive to the fans. There was a there was this groundswell support to get the our old logo back, which is really Blue Demon uh, logo, where, where our our Blue Demon is sitting on top of a hoop. Oh, it looks like he's taking a crap. 
So <laughs> but it's one of the most beloved high icons of DePaul basketball. When they, you know, when I started getting great, in, you know, 1979 Final Four. So this logo, we're all saying we want it back, we want it back. And he said, okay, yeah, you guys want it, and we're getting it back, and it's coming back this this year sometime in March. Knows what to do to turn around program. To switch and focus over to the team, this year they were picked 10th out of 11 teams in the preseason coaches poll, which is pretty much where they finished last season. They finished 10th. They had a 3-15 and conference record, but they blasted out to a 12-1 start with big wins against Iowa, Minnesota, BC, Texas Tech. We thought that this was going to be a brand new DePaul team. But unfortunately for DePaul, Seton Hall came into town when conference started play. And it all seemed to change. DePaul did have a lead at halftime of six, but Miles Powell came back from that concussion and scored 18 of his game-high 27 points in the final 20 minutes for that Pirate victory. What seemed to go wrong with the season from that point forward, Dan? I don't know. Those, those first two games were just absolute breakers. The first Prior to that Seton Hall game, they were winning the, almost the whole game against Providence, and uh, they had a one-point lead with... Uh, Seven seconds left, and they fouled Nate Watson. But I think actually it was a it was a tie game. Actually, I'm sorry, it was a tie game, and they fouled Watson with like seven seconds left. And at the time, I think he was like a 55% shooter. He made he missed the first one. He obviously made the second one, and then they lost that game. And then they lost the game where they had the lead against Seton Hall. Then they went to St. John's, just completely flat. And then they went to Villanova, had an awesome game. They had a really good chance to win, and they went 0-4. And then the confidence, they said, here we go again. We're banning conference. We're not going to get out of this hole. And it just started from there. The chemistry just went to, to crap, to put it nicely. And they just couldn't recover from that emotional toll that it took from the, the, that four-game losing season to start the season. Well, speaking of recovering, Dan, I mean, it kind of shocks me that one would think that after this poor finish, Dave Leto could possibly be on the hot seat. But in the offseason, also back in April, you know, he was given a four-year contract extension to kind of take his current deal out to the 2023-2024 season. You know, it's it's his now the start of his sixth season with DePaul on his second go-round. And during the first five seasons, he was 64 and 98 overall and 19 and 71 during Biggie's play. You know, the extension was granted to him prior to Dwayne Peavy taking over. You know, regardless of the extension, is he on a shorter leash because of the new AD? Oh, for certain. Um, this was just to um, kick the can down the road. They, you know, there was rumors that Gene Lenti Ponsetto was going to retire in June, but it wasn't an official. So they didn't want to make, you know, Leto a lame duck at the end of the season. So they gave him this contract, which has an easy buyout. So it's not a, it's not a, a thing that's going to cripple them financially. So I, I think – PV said that he can have a turnaround with the new with the coach that's already there, but I think it's NCAA or bust right now, and he has to, because you know like the, the record speaks for itself, and he's not doing that good of a job. And um, and you know PV knows success up him when he works with that when he worked with Kentucky. So if it's if it's not there at the end of the year, if they're having a season like they did last year, there's, there's a, I don't see any way that later would come back see i thought they might have given him the extension due to the fact that they had just landed a successful 2021 recruiting class and you didn't want to have that kind of lame duck scenario with the new recruits coming in so you align the contract with the new class so you kind of tell the parents hey there's some potential security here for the next four years as we're going to kind of rebuild this thing that was my logic is is that in line with what's what's going on 
Yeah, absolutely. I guess PV no one. He he came in August, so he wasn't going to fire him. You know, you don't hire a coach. Let's like say a lot of people wanted Lado fire at the end of the year because he did awful because they you know had an awful Big East conference record, and so many people wanted him gone. And there were some decent coaches that you could get, but you want the AD to hire that guy. So, like you said, you comp you combine the fact that he had a great recruiting class, you kick the can down the road, let PV evaluate him, get the, let's see if they could have a good season this year. And uh, that recruiting class only bolstered it. So we'll see if through to the labor from that recruiting class. Because actually, two guys, may act, or one guy enrolled early. He's going to be avail- eligible on January 4th, Keon Edwards. And another one, maybe D- David Davy Johnson, may be available too this year. Now, now, we mentioned the recruiting class, but l- let's talk this up a little bit because it's stellar. It's ranked 14th nationally by 24-7 sports. You mentioned Keon Edwards already. But you also have Ahmad Bynum, who's a four-star guy, ranked 75th. He's a guard. David Jones is a three-star guard, but right outside that top 100 ranking at 122. And Kak Kiat, a three-star guy at 142. You know, what has been the biggest contributing factor to landing such a solid class? Because this isn't the first good class that DePaul's landed. They got two fabulous recruiters. Um, One's a Chicago guy, which is Tim Anderson. He's got great connections in Chicago. He's actually, that's the reason they got Ahmad Bonham. His He is best friends with Ahmad Bonham's father, which is Will Bonham, the guy who played at uh, Georgia Tech and Arizona and NBA. Yeah. That's his That's his uncle, I think. They're very tight. And um, he, ha- he has, Tim Anderson also has uh, this training session where it's called Ground Zero Training, which is great for, uh, he trained a lot of pros like Anthony Davis, Jabari Parker, Paul George. They got a lot of guys that, uh, worked out with him and then that's that gave him a lot of cred like i think romeo weems wanted to play with him because of that and then we got another recruit uh recruiter mark shoe he's actually a guy from flushing new york he was last at western kentucky and he's just got contacts all over the world he's done a great job with uh getting like nick Angenda. kobe elvis is a freshman that we didn't think was going to be good but showing a lot of signs of promise keon edwards he was the lead there um so he's a very good recruiter those two guys are really, really good recruiters. Well, DePaul did suffer some key losses, lost some big pieces from their team last year. Obviously, you start at the top with Paul Reed, who was drafted in the NBA, 15 points a game, 10 boards. He was second team all Big East last year. You had Jalen Coleman-Lance, who transferred to ISU. He was 11 points a game, the third leading scorer. And Devin Gage also transferred out to Fresno State. How much are the Blue Demons missing these three upperclassmen, specifically the front court talents of Paul Reed? Well, definitely that's their biggest problem right now. They're in their first three games, they're not rebounding well at all. It's not just Reed. They don't have Jalen Butts right now, who's out and definitely on a personal reasons. And he's a great rebounder and interior defender. We have like, it's just, we're relying on a guy who was a uh, freshman last year, Nick Angenda and uh, Polly Policap, our graduate transfer from Manhattan. Those are like our two only big guys, and uh, that's just that's what's just killing us right now. They Connecticut absolutely manhandled DePaul on on you know Wednesday night, and that was a big problem. Outside of that, they are really not missing Jalen Coleman Lands because he was not efficient at all last year. He's a very bulk three point shooter. He's uh, starting to play well this year. I noticed he's shooting like over forty percent with Iowa State. The last year it was like 32 percent three point three shooter. He's better than that, but he he just they, you know, defense has clogged the lane, and 
they, it was either get the ball to Paul Reed inside or Charlie Moore would try to do a lot. And when he could, you know, he couldn't kick out to a good three point shooter. They would just, it just never worked out for that way. And the, those um, perimeter players, they, I think they, they upgraded with uh, the guys they got this year, the grad transfers like Javon Freeman livery, great player out of Valparaiso, great two way player. Sal Nave from Monmouth, not having a good start yet, but uh, they're hoping big things out of him. Um, and also a division, division two transfer, Cavassier McCauley, great shooter. It's not getting a lot of run right now because I think Leto is not happy with his defense. Um, but otherwise, I think they have good guards to play in this league, but they don't have the big men right now. And they're hoping to get Jalen Betts back, but we don't know when that will be. Well, Dan, you just talked about a lot of the guys that they brought in on the transfer market. Let's talk about the guys that are still here from last year's roster in the backcourt. You already mentioned Charlie Moore, and you also have Romeo Weems, who's an up-and-coming sophomore at this point. Now, let, let, let's focus on Moore for starters. Moore was selected preseason first-team All-Big East. You know, last year he averages 15 and a half a game, over six assists, but he shoots 37% from the floor and averages three and a half turnovers. And early on, the turnover bugaboo is still kind of hitting him four mm-hmm. turnovers per game so far in the early season. Now, no one has questioned that Moore has talent, but his shot selection and carelessness with the ball has kind of been his Achilles heel throughout his career. Is this the year that he's going to turn the corner and kind of put it all together? I don't know. He, yeah, that's that's just that's who he is. He tries too much. I think Lado gave him the keys to the car and said, do what you got to do to put us over the hump. And I, I, yeah, you, he, he just forces too much things. He, he over penetrates too much. Sauce selection is very spotty at best. I mean, sometimes, the, you know, he pulls out from like eight feet behind the three point line. He'll have a lot of great games. Like, you know, he was f- phenomenal in that, you know, Big East game, the last Big East full game they had in the conference last year against Xavier. Um, he'll have his moments, you know, in a, in non-conference, he was definitely money. I mean, if it wasn't him, we wouldn't beat Minnesota. We would beat Boston College. He's, his decision-making is not great. He's got to learn how to sp- spread the ball, be more facilitated in the score, because they do have better scores on the wings now, which Yvonne Freeman literally, and we think Romeo Williams is going to have a great sophomore breakout season. Here. He, you know, that game against Providence, if it wasn't for him, they wouldn't have been in that game. It was double overtime because, I mean, it was like six – he was eight for ten from the field, six rate, uh, five for six and three. So he, they got they got to go run through R- Romeo instead of Trolley. That's pretty much what we got to do. From that's what we got to do. All right, so let's go there next because most of the pundits out there expected to have Romeo Weems take this big sophomore leap, and he essentially has done so. And, and you already kind of highlighted it: big game against Providence in the loss, twenty-one points, seven boards. You know, he he does have the talent, and it's not a shock he was you know, 53rd ranked in his recruiting class in the 2019 group. You know, for those who haven't seen Weems play yet, how good is he already and what kind of ceiling does he have? He's the uh, 3 and D guy that the NBA loves right now. I saw Bleacher Report, uh, one of their mock drafts, had him number 20. Um, he's just athletic to the core. I mean, he's he can play inside and out. He's got a great motor. He's got great length. He's always in the middle of every play. He's kind of like a mini Paul Reed in that way. He's got much better jump shot than Paul Reed, though. Obviously, he fills out the break. He's a very confident player. He's someone you really want to build around if you want to have a good season. And that's what we're hoping as the Paul fans to see him really full, really reach his full potential. He didn't have a great game against Connecticut, though. We're all just a little disappointed in that. We thought he would have a you know continuation kind of effort, but 
it didn't it wasn't meant to be and I just think Connecticut's one of the best defensive teams in the Big East right now and they, that was just a terrible matchup but otherwise I think we're going to see Reams possibly even make first team all Big East if he's on this right trajectory that's what we're hoping for well, I got a chance to see pieces of that UConn game. And what, what I thought was missing was just a banger down low to kind of neutralize the glass. And you've already mentioned that Jalen Butts is currently out indefinitely for personal reasons. Is there any kind of timeline that they might see him come back? Is is it next week, potentially in the Seton Hall matchup? All I can say is it's possible. That's what um, our AD, Dwayne Peavy, said. It's, he's hoping to get him back from the second uh, quarter or, yeah, the second quarter, which starts on January 4th. So, this hope, as you know, we, we saw um, on Twitter a video of him practicing in his hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana. I don't know if that's just him getting shots up and just getting them, getting away from things or if he's gearing up for a return, we don't know. So we're just crossing our fingers. Well, you mentioned some of the new faces already, and let's look into them a little bit more. You've got a lot of talent coming in from a lot of transfers. But also, these are some of the best names I've ever seen in basketball here. Let's go through them all. You got Javon Freeman Liberty, who you mentioned. He's a guard transfer from Valparaiso last year. He scored 19 points a game in the Missouri Valley. You got Paulie, Paulie Cap, a grad transfer from Manhattan, who would look good in New Jersey. I'll tell you that. You got Cavassier McCauley from Lincoln Memorial, a Juco guy. Ray Salnave, a transfer from Monmouth, who scored 14 points a game in the 1920 season. Now, with all the impacts of the pandemic, how difficult is it going to be for these guys to develop a semblance of some sort of chemistry with all the new faces? Yeah, it's tough. That's you know, that's one of the things that DePaul is always having trouble with these these year, these last couple of years. Leto tries to upgrade the talent each year, and sometimes he just takes these transfers who are good players. You know, like. Guys like Coleman Lands and these guys, you know, and, and, you know, actually he's done a really good job with grad transfers. A couple of years ago, we had uh, Marin Marich, good center from uh, Northern Illinois, and then they got another center from North Carolina A&T, Femi Olajobi. Um, those guys worked out well. And then, so, but yeah, without you know normal practices, they said before their first game against Western Illinois, I think he said like there was only twelve practices with everybody on the court at the same time. So. You know that's not conducive to winning, and the, all the stop the stoppages and comes the stops and comes back and come back and you know all that rigmarole and it's not it's not easy to gain that that chemistry that they need, especially when you're trying to integrate those guys with the guys that are coming back. It's kind of like it's like two teams in, in in a way that are coming together. We try to come on to these kind of episodes and go behind the scenes and talk about the games that have been played to kind of get some breakdown analysis in the upcoming matchup. But there haven't been that many games to kind of break down and decipher. So let's kind of work with what we got. We have a couple early season results. You got a 19 point victory for the, the Blue Demons versus Western Illinois to kick off the season. As Tom said, as late as December 23rd, Charlie Moore had 22 points. Freeman Liberty had 19 points eight rebounds, six assists, and three steals. Talk about what Key can bring to the table for the Blue Demons in terms of versatility when you see a stat line like that. Oh, yeah. he's He prides himself on defense. He's he's a fantastic defensive player. He's I think he was top 10 in the, the country last year in steals. Somewhere 10 or in top 10 to 20 range in steals. Um, not a great shooter, but he can make it. He was really good in the uh, – he showed good flashes in the Western Illinois game and um, – 
struggled in the Providence game for three. He's not a great shooter though, but he's a good, he's a great penetrator. He um he can find people on the open. He's a good combo guard. He can find the open man. Um, he had a really sweet pass in a game against Western Illinois that showcased that he could put it on the deck. He's very tenacious for his size, six four, strong strong bodied. Um, he's kind of fearless. He's got that Chicago playground attitude, and uh, he's very tough two way player that they're going to be d- depending on this year. Now, one of the most entertaining games so far in the young season was DePaul's double OT loss to Providence, 95 to 90. But with 10 seconds to play in regulation, A.J. Reeves hits a three to send it into the first overtime period. Now, did Dave Lato kind of question his strategy there not to foul and kind of put them on the line and kind of do that got to make one, miss one kind of strategy? Because, I mean, it, it, he got a pretty wide open look. That, that, that must have hurt. Yeah, uh, no one really asked him about that after the game. Should have. Yeah, I, I, obviously there was like 16 seconds left when he got Providence got the ball. You don't foul. You shouldn't foul right away. I was saying like at 10, uh, 10, 10 seconds, like foul, foul, foul. But then AJ Reeves ducked under a screener and gave him a perfect lane. And it was like very hard to get out and foul before Reeves got it. To me, it wasn't about fouling Reeves though. They went through an entire motion offense type set to kind of get Reeves that look off of a double pin down screen. Why is there not more pressure on the ball handler and give up that foul with eight seconds to go, six seconds to go right there on the ball before Reeves even gets the pass? They should have, you know, I was saying about eight, 10 seconds. That's when you should do it. You're right. Once that happened, you, you, you figured, here we go again, DePaul. And to their credit, they uh, they fought, you know. They got the ball back with uh, five seconds left. I don't know why Lato didn't call a timeout in re- overtime, and they, they they couldn't even get a shot off in, the, in overtime. Uh, and that, that hurt, too. So just mental mistakes, shooting himself in the foot. That's big. And getting to one of the Achilles heel with DePaul is, you know, besides you we talked about rebounding, it's turnovers. They just – they're just awful right now. They're just turning them over at the worst worst time imaginable. And uh, Charlie Moore was a culprit. Darius Hall had a big turnover at an inc- inconvenient time. And it, that's just they're, they're shooting himself in the foot. Besides the rebounding issue and the chemistry issue, it's just I, I think that that could be a cause of just them not practicing and not getting their sea legs. So hopefully that's something they can correct, and that's what we're hoping out of. Well, like you said, I, I like the phrase, here we go again. That kind of seems befitting to DePaul at times. But in terms of here we go again, they're supposed to play St. John's. And there it is, another pause. It's not related to anything DePaul did this time, but there's a the protocol to pause in the St. John's program. They're not sure if they had a false positive and they had to kind of postpone the game. My concern is this, because of DePaul essentially missing the entire non-conference, missing games already in conference play, and then being at the mercy of other programs pausing throughout the Big East, could DePaul be subject to not meeting the 13-game minimum to be eligible for postseason play? Yeah, that's a good thing that the Big East did, though. They have that pocket of games in February. There's a lot of you know breaks in between in February, so we're hoping we get some uh, makeup games in there. Especially, like I said, maybe – my theory of the antibody thing is like we're we're done with it this year. Hopefully, it's yeah. But like we're also going to be on the whims of other teams now. Uh, I was just talking to a, a friend of mine. I think he said now the only team in the Big East that doesn't has a, didn't have a pause is Providence. So as long as we get all these teams like some of them exposed to this and then move past, hopefully we can get 
you know, that 13 game threshold to get in. All right, Dan, uh, let, let's get into the upcoming game a little bit. Obviously we're recording this episode uh, of the Saturday prior. So we don't know what's going to transpire in that Villanova game. And if everyone's going to remain healthy, but assuming everything's status quo heading into that matchup, what's the most interesting one-on-one matchup within the game itself, player on player that you're looking to, to kind of observe? Well, not necessarily a, a personal matchup, but the front court, you guys are, you know, pretty loaded down low. I mean, you're pretty big. You're one of the bigger teams in the country, to be honest, right? I believe we're the third tallest team on average. I'm sorry. I think I heard an announcer say it once or twice so. every game. That's going to be the game. They're going to have to, it's going to be a, probably a contrast of style. I think DePaul is going to be like crash the boards, you know, like team rebounding crashing the boards, get on the break, try to get them in a, uh, a track meet instead of like methodical playing in the half court set because, you know, we got two unexperienced, well, not unexperienced. One is unexperienced, our sophomore, Nick Ongenda. He's got a load of potential. He's a 6'11 sophomore center, but he's he's real thin for his size and he can be pushed around by Sandro and um, Ike and, you know, those guys. And then Paulie Polakap, bounds bounds of boundless energy six eight you know he's very muscular but you know a little undersized but he can be a bull in the paint but those two guys are going to really have to step up their game and play great defense on that game because that's that that's what we got to do i'm not so worried about i think we could lock down the guards pretty well because javon freeman literally you can expect him on uh either aiken or miles kale and he's you know i'm i'm mostly worried about playing the post and uh, not found so much. I mean, that's that's going to be another issue. It's going to be a lot of. It's going to be down to the foul trouble. And, uh, we'll see how how many fouls a piece Polycap and Angenda can have in that game because we're going to need some of them on the floor. Otherwise, we might be getting run into the gym. Dan, you sound like you're in outer space all of a sudden. But we're going to ask you one final question here. You know, we always like to put you guys on the spot. Are you gonna make the hometown fans happy in Chicago? Who's gonna win this game? Well, there's, there's always heart and head. My heart says the Paul's gonna win, but my head says this is also another great matchup. That's this, this is kind of reminding of the UConn game. Unless we get butts back, I don't see that happening. We're just gonna, we're gonna get pounded on the boards. Um, second chance points. It's gonna be a huge Seton Hall points of turnovers. Seton Hall. I see a competitive game. I think what happens. A lot depends on what happens Tuesday if DePaul can actually beat Villanova. A lot of great momentum and confidence will be transferred till Thursday, and uh, that can help. Even still, the matchup, Bucks probably still being out, them still getting used to each other. The game against Seton Hall, the game against uh, St. John's being canceled. They need some more reps. Um, I don't see it, but I'll, I'll go with the prediction of Seton Hall 80, DePaul 74. Close game. It's going to be a close one in Chicago. Well, Dan, we can't thank you enough for spending some time tonight. We always appreciate you coming aboard, and we wish you nothing but the best after the game with Seton Hall. So, Dan, thanks a lot. No problem. It was fun. Dan Stack, everybody. All right, Mike, we heard what Dan Stack thought. How do you see this week playing out? Oh, Tommy, I, I, I want to stay positive. Like I said that, but I mean, how do you sit there and say that the Pirates are going to go into Creighton and come out with a win? You know, it's still a road environment. They still have fans that are coming into the building. And let's not forget, Creighton is going to be a top 10 team, a team that was predicted to finish top two in the Big East regular season standings. 
you know, they, we talked about the weapons they have. This is a good barometer for where Seton Hall is at. I, I think the Xavier game was a surprise and a kind of uh, like almost a aha moment. With, okay, all right, we can be in that top half of the Big East. We can challenge for an NCAA tournament spot. Now you're kind of going through the litmus test, which is like, hey, can we play with the big boys? Creighton is going to be the first real test in a road environment to kind of see where we're at. And if that early season kind of grind that we went through is going to pay its dividends at this point in the season. Well, Mike, I thought we were going to go out to Milwaukee and lose. I thought we were going to get out to Cincinnati and we're going to lose to Xavier. And Mike, I don't know about Omaha. I don't think we're going to win this game. I think Creighton is one of those teams that is going to be very comfortable at their own house. They're going to shoot the ball well, and I think it's just going to be a little too much. Could they, I, could could the Pirates win? Obviously, they've already shown that they can go into someone else's place and put a beating on someone. But this is going to be, like you mentioned, a good litmus test. On the back end, we come home through Chicago. And to be honest with you, there should be no reason we lose to DePaul. I don't want to see another game like Butler. I think we should go out against DePaul, take care of business, get our players in, and then come home. But I think it's going to be a one-on-one week. But Mike, let me just say something. If I told you before the start of the season that we were going to start the biggest season 6-2, and two, I would take that every day of the week, twice on Sunday. Heck yeah, especially after all the variables that they've gone through here early in the season. You know, the the injury to Aiken, the COVID pause, the difficult one and three start that they had to endure, all the travel. Of course, I'd be happy with six and two. And I agree. I think they're going to go into Chicago and they're going to beat DePaul. I mean, they're the better team on paper. They're the better team talent-wise. They should be taking advantage of the lack of on-court opportunities that DePaul has had due to all the pauses that they've had to go through. I mean, DePaul, DePaul didn't have to play this game against St. John's because of another pause not related to them, but they're not getting in rhythm. But then when you actually look at what potentially is going to happen on the court, we talked about it. Their, their better player or their best player is typically Charlie Moore is going to have the ball in his hands the majority of the time. He's sloppy. He takes some bad shots. If the Seton Hall guards play in this DePaul game, the way they played against Butler and they make his life miserable, I think we're going to see a lot of turnovers. I think we're going to see the Pirates rebound and get out in transition like you've been asking them to do. I think this game is going to get played at our tempo. It might get ugly and sloppy at times, but I think ultimately we're going to come out ahead just because we should. And Mike, one final thing that I am grateful for, I am grateful for a normal start time. It's going to be 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, which puts it right about dinner time. I'm going to have a nice plate of food in front of me. I'm going to have the game on the big screen, and I'm going to be screaming with the kids, Go Pirates! You know what I'm grateful for, Tommy? We went through a podcast where we were 2-0 and for the week. I probably got a little grumpy at times, and you didn't call me an Eeyore once. How about that? I let the fans do that, Mike. I don't need to do that anymore. All right. Well, that being said, go Big Blue. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other of your favorite listening platforms. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle, at Pirates. 
We are also proud members of the What You Expect Network of Podcasts. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 